Hello, and welcome to The Beeline, the official podcast of the West Virginia National Guard. I'm Master Sergeant Eugene Christ, a public affairs specialist with your West Virginia National Guard. Today on the show, we have Dr. Clay Marsh, West Virginia Coronavirus Czar, and Vice President and Executive Dean of West Virginia University Health. Colonel Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and West Virginia National Guard State Surgeon. And Colonel Kermit Hubner the Aviation Medical Officer with the 772nd Troop Command of the West Virginia Army National Guard, an academic faculty at Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine, and at the Department of Military and Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Service University of Health and Sciences. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for being on the show today. Thanks. Great to be here with you. Absolutely. Well, uh, uh, Dr. Marsh, uh, first let me, uh, Clay, let me thank you for uh, coming on the show today and because uh, I, I know you're rather busy. Um, but uh, the first thing I'd like to get to, uh, sir, if you could describe to us what the three C's are and why it's vitally important for us moving forward um, as we're getting more and more excuses to leave the house nowadays to follow them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And and we know that as we look around the world at countries that have um, have navigated coming back out again and and going from you know staying in your homes to try to reduce the rate of spread of COVID-19 and get back together, open the, the businesses back up, open the tra- public transportation back up. That um, that a comparison country for the United States is Japan. And Japan is a country of 127 million people, the United States about 331 million. And when we look at the outcomes from COVID, Japan's been back open again, and they have had fewer than 1,000 deaths total from COVID-19. The U.S., in contrast, is, um, is moving toward completely opening, and, and we know in West Virginia, the governor has made a lot of, um, of progress in opening the state, but we have over 110,000 deaths. And when you look at the main difference, there's really a few. Number one is Japan is a mask-wearing culture, and we know that masks of 80% of people wear will reduce the uh, reproductive rate of the virus, the spread of the virus, to below one which means the virus is starting to dissipate, is starting to stop, is slowing down. And in Japan, they avoid the three Cs, as you just uh, rightly alluded to. And those three Cs are crowds, that when you're with a lot of other people, that gives the virus a greater chance of spreading. Close and constant contacts with other people, particularly people you don't live with, that's another one of the Cs. And we know that being exposed to somebody for greater than 15 minutes at uh, three to six feet or less increases your risk of developing the uh, coronavirus, novel coronavirus if somebody else is infected. And the last C is close spaces. So as we think about indoor spaces versus outdoor spaces. So in Japan, there's secret sauce. and. And remember the risk in a population-adjusted uh, basis between Japan and the U.S. is only 2% uh, risk of dying from COVID in Japan versus the U.S. And, and those three Cs are don't 
stay indoors as much as you can avoid it. Don't stay around people that you don't know so well, close contacts for a, for a long period of time, and avoid crowds, and wear your mask. And that should help us get through this COVID uh, coming back out together part. And I, I know that the, the governor talks uh, daily about, you know, how great our numbers are here in the state and uh, your team and uh, the governor and us as the West Virginia National Guard have worked really hard at educating people. But can you talk a little bit about um, the metrics and the science behind uh, the spread? And uh, I, I know there's the World Health Organization has tried to, uh, has kind of changed their uh, stance on uh, asymptomatic folks, but could could you talk to us a little bit about what the current science is about the virus? Sure. Well, the the novel coronavirus is a or COVID nineteen is a really um, unique and very very sophisticated virus, and and this virus came from animals to people. Uh, it is able to spread from people who are infected who don't yet know they're infected and. And I'll mention what you asked about, about the World Health Organization and, and their comments here recently. But the virus also has a very unique feature, and that feature is it has a repair mechanism. So many viruses and many other coronaviruses don't contain this, this, uh, this ability to repair themselves at the, at the genetic level. And therefore, things that cause the virus to be stressed makes the virus start to make mistakes in its genetics and, and, and how it reproduces. But, th but this particular virus has an ability to repair those mistakes, and that makes the virus much more hardy and much more stable. So when we look at what spreads the COVID-19 virus, we used to think that it was really important to not touch things, that, that ultimately we thought the deposition of the virus on surfaces like on countertops or on elevator buttons or on, uh, on water fountains was a major way that this spread. And I think as we have learned more about the virus, we know that that's still something you should be careful about, you know, washing your hands and, and not touching your face. But it, it is clear, I think, today that the virus spreads largely by person-to-person -person, uh, droplet spread. And, and we know that people that are coughing or sneezing or that are sick that have symptoms of COVID can spread the virus. And, and so that's something we've talked a lot about, you know, covering your coughs and your sneezes and don't go out if you're sick. But, but what we're finding out more recently and have found out is the people who have the have the infection with the COVID virus oftentimes don't know they're infected. And, and the World Health Organization made a statement, their lead um, science and infection officer, by saying the people that are truly asymptomatic, which means that through the whole course of being infected with the virus, they never have any symptoms that those people are not very commonly found and that they also are people that don't actively spread the virus. Now that got pushed back by some other people, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, who basically said, yeah, we don't really know all that. And that may be a little bit, you know, getting over your skis to make that statement. But, but what is probably true 
is we know today that a relatively small part of the people who are infected with COVID-19 spread the virus to others, and they're called super spreaders. And we know that in every series, every experience from other countries, that they found that a small 1% to 10% of the people infected with COVID do a lot of the spreading. And in South Korea, they found one person who infected over 3,000 people. In Hong Kong, one person left the infection of over 300 people. Eight uh, dance instructors, exercise instructors, I think in Miami, infected 112 people. One person infected, infected 56 out of 62 people in a choir practice in Washington State. And these people can have the, this pre-symptomatic phase, this phase before they get symptoms where they are infectious. So that is a group of people that don't know they have the virus yet, don't have really any symptoms of the virus. But generally, all these people do get symptoms. And, and, and during the immediate pre-symptomatic phase and the kind of half day to two days before they get symptoms, and right as they're getting symptoms and like that day after symptoms start, that's when people are the most infectious. So the problem is that you have people that are having COVID infections that don't know it and haven't been diagnosed. And they can spread it to a lot of other people. And that's the reason why wearing masks is so important. Because remember, masks, masks are, are, are worn to try to reduce the droplet spread. And people that are infected with COVID and don't know it, they are producing these small droplets that have the virus in it. And if you're close to them and you get exposed, you can breathe those droplets in. And the virus then deposits in, your, in the back of your nose and your throat. And, and then the virus can go from just a few copies of the virus to 10,000 copies in 24 hours. And if it keeps going, it can become hundreds of millions of copies in your blood in the, you know, the next two or three days. So the virus can really amplify. And, and, the, and the finding is that you can spread these droplets by just breathing normally, by talking normally, by singing, by panting, by yelling. So, so that's the reason why staying distance from people is important and being outside because the droplets then start to dissipate and, and reduce their concentration in the outside air. But wearing a face mask, even if it's a homemade face mask that has two or three layers or some of the face masks you can buy off Amazon or some of the ones people are making and distributing, that markedly reduces the droplets that gets suspended in the air and reduce the risk of you infecting somebody else if you are in that pre-symptomatic phase. Remember, masks keep you from infecting other people. It's not just them infecting you. So it's really an act of altruism and, and caring for other people by wearing a mask. That's that's so true. I, um, I know myself and uh, Doc Fredericks just recorded a a video about the importance of wearing masks for uh, guardsmen. Colonel Fredericks and uh, Colonel Hubner, could you talk a little bit? I know uh, a lot of units uh, now to get a little bit more guard-centric are starting back for unit training assemblies and individual training periods. Dr. Marsh has kind of already discussed this, but uh, what are the things that we need to be uh, looking at more as we're starting to come together as a, a National Guard force to uh, get back to a, a new normal? You know, when it comes to the National Guard and being able to come in and start resuming our training and doing IDTs and ATs and 
uh, folks getting ready for deployment. Again, just like Dr. Marsh said, it's, it's important for us to realize that when it comes to infectious diseases, you know, there's really three things um, that are that are um, key to an infection being able to start. One is the host, the other is the agent, and then the third thing is the environment. And in order to get an infection, you have to kind of have all those three things kind of line up together. So from a host standpoint, the biggest thing is, is trying to be healthy and avoid um, things that could potentially put you at risk as far as having higher morbidity or mortality from an infection or specifically with, with COVID-19 um, with some of the things that are associated with, uh, with increased symptomatology and, and bad outcomes. There's not really a lot that we can do about the agent at this point, specifically because there's no vaccine available or other things um, that can be used really from a, a pharmacologic standpoint that's really been shown to make a substantial impact on mortality. So the biggest thing is the environment, um, and that's where those three C's come into play. Um, so again, you know, trying to avoid closed spaces, being able to do training that's outside, um, being able to be in that outdoor environment where uh, those droplet aerosols, if there is someone who's infected, if they do have droplet aerosols, they get to disperse in the air and air turbulence can kind of break those up. And the other thing is that ambient heat and humidity can help degrade some of those droplet aerosols as well. And then avoiding crowded places. So during drills, you want to try to avoid being in large groups. Uh, preferably be in um, smaller groups, less than 20 people, uh, around folks that you've been around and training with in the past or folks that you know. Um, try to avoid mixing crowds with uh, folks from other units or folks that you haven't been uh, in very much contact with recently. And then trying to avoid those close contact uh, settings like Dr. Marsha said. Um, if you can't uh, socially distance and you have to be in more kind of confined close quarters, then you definitely want to make sure that you're doing things to increase airflow, to break up those droplet particles, and then also make sure that you're wearing a mask because, again, that will decrease the potential of having those uh, droplets being expelled through the mask or potentially even even bring, breathing them in through the mask itself. Well, the bottom line is because it's really early in the process. Um, and it, it, just to cut to the chase, it's the best thing we've got. So our testing isn't awesome. You know, we don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have an easy way of identifying people that have this disease. It's not like SARS or MERS, where people get SARS or MERS, and they're sick very quickly and they end up in the hospital. That keeps them from wandering around society and shedding virus, because they usually get so sick so quickly, they end up in an ER or an ICU, and so they don't have a time to infect people. And so um, I would just comment, too, recently on WHO, right? WHO says something, it creates a massive amount of storm on the Internet, and they walk back some of that stuff. You've had journals that have had to pull um, advanced studies back because they can't replicate data. And I like to use the term mob science because there's a desire for people to have information about things that just take time to get really good information about. And so the best thing we have is masks, social distancing, and hygiene. And they're really simple things too, right? So, so, that, so using a mask um, and, and realizing everything Dr. Marsh said about droplet control, it's effective, it's worked for 90 years. I, I pulled a paper the other day from the journal, from an anesthesiology journal that documented the photographic evidence to surgeons wearing masks in an OR. Uh, 
surgeons wear masks in ORs not to protect themselves from patients, but to protect patients from themselves. It's the same principle. We're just trying to protect other people from our droplets. And if we all wear masks, then we're doing each other a favor. We're looking after each other. I think Dr. Marsh spoke to this rather, rather well just a few minutes ago. Same thing with social distancing and, you know, learning what six feet looks like. You know, learning that we can have pretty good conversations outside. We don't have to worry as much, especially in summertime. But if we go inside, that we may be protecting someone's grandma at home by washing our distance and, and making sure surfaces are clean. And just learning to wash our hands really well. Um, I, would, I would say that I had a nice conversation with Major Bashar the other day for a podcast I, I do myself. We talked about how Major Bashar has already seen in his private pulmonology practice a reduction in uh, um, asthma exacerbations or worsening of asthma in children and adults with COPD with lung infections because they're not as exposed as much as they were before social distancing. Mm -hmm. So we can demonstrate that this stuff really works. It's just really hard for people because they're not used to it. We're, we're used to a personal space of about three feet. We're used to facing people and, and eye to eye. We don't like masks. You know, what do people associate masks with? Well, they associate with bank robbers. And like Dr. Marsh talked about, Japan, Asian countries are, are mask compliant countries. They, they've gotten used to it for a lot of reasons, but so, socially they're conditioned for that. And it just takes time to condition people in society to understand that's really important. And, they'll, and believe me, when people don't want to do something, they'll find any reason that they can find not to. And you just see that on the internet. All sorts of people citing things that aren't proven just to get out of doing something because it's uncomfortable and it's unpleasant. But it's still the best thing we got. In another year, we'll have a different conversation, right? But right now, it's it's masks, hygiene, and social distancing. That's those are really good points. I um, I I've had the opportunity to ask this question, uh, Clay, to a couple. Um, couple of folks and it's mainly been a military audience so i'm excited to get a uh, uh, more civilian opinion on this but what uh, would you say uh, is the contributing factor to the low infection rate in in the state well i i think that there's several reasons for that you know we know that the world is very interconnected and uh, you know the the Thinking, as, uh, as uh, Dr. Fredericks just said, the thinking that we would not see, you know, COVID spread from China, um, you know, to Europe, to the U.S., to now to South America is really naive because we're so interconnected. And, and as we see the, um, the spread, we see it happen in generally in more metropolitan areas to begin with. We know that, that you know, northern Italy that is a wealthy part of Italy and Spain, you know, in the UK and New York and, you know, the bigger cities, California, San Francisco and California and LA, you know, are the, are the first path they are affected because they are more directly interconnected than, say, more rural States like West Virginia. So I think on the first round, even though we do have an incredibly vulnerable population, Kaiser Family Foundation rated it as the most vulnerable, we are not as deeply connected as big urban metropolitan areas 
nor do we have the population density in our cities like New York does or Chicago does or, you know, now as you look at Arizona, they're starting to have problems. So, so we have a lot of people that are closely in contact with each other. That's where the COVID virus spreads quickly. So I think West Virginia, you know, we did well because I think the, the state and the governor made some very good decisions. You know, um, not having our um, students come back for spring break, break on the colleges and universities, having the schools, you know, um, stop, having no visitation in the nursing homes. Uh, certainly the more aggressive mitigation suppression measures, you know, the stay-at-home order, the shutting down of non-essential businesses. All those made a big difference as well. And I think our citizens were good about watching out for themselves and watching out for each other. You know, I think as we are coming back out again, though, those same benefits, you know, are, are potentially challenges for us because we did really well, maybe even surprisingly well by some people's estimation on the, on the, the initial phase of the COVID pandemic. But remember, in the 1918 pandemic, the Spanish flu, there's really the second phase that was a much stronger impact phase where more people died than the first phase. Now, that was complicated because the 1918 pandemic was H1M1, swine flu, that basically affected 25 to 40-year-olds, and we're in the middle of World War One. So that was, you know, a lot of people were in close opposition to each other in the war and traveling back and forth. But the 1918 pandemic, as I understand it, led to the death of, you know, an estimated 50 to 100 million people around the world. So we are in maybe the second quarter of a four-quarter game or maybe halftime. So we need to remember that nobody is spared from this virus, this uh, pandemic. And the secondary spread from the urban places that are hit at first, then generally secondarily come to the rural places. So predictably more rural states and rural places have a higher risk of being affected on this second round. And that's the reason why we've been so consistent and asking people to really pay attention to, you know, the distancing and the hand hygiene, but particularly the face covers, the wearing the mask. So we know that if we get a vaccine, that if the vaccine has enough impact and we get enough people vaccinated, we can drive herd immunity through the vaccine. And if the spread of the COVID virus is approximately, you know, at the time we give the vaccine is approximately two to two and a half then we, which means one person infected would infect two or two and a half new people. They would then infect two, two and a half new people. And if you do that math, it sounds like, well, it's no big deal. But if you have a single person infected with COVID and it's in a reproduction number is two, one person infects two, two, four, four, eight, four, eight, 16. And you take the doubling time of the virus is six days. So 10 doubling times, which would be about two months that one person at a spread rate of one person infecting two would have infected um, 1,024 people. And then if you don't interrupt that cycle and you take another two months, another 10 doubling times, and that one person then in four months 
would have infected a million people. That's with an M. And if you take another four months or two months, another 10 doubling times, and you don't interrupt that whole network, that whole cycle, that one person at six months would have infected a billion people. That's with a B. So as you keep going, you can see the rate of spread goes logarithmic. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to stop that rate of spread. And so if you have a vaccine that has, uh, that, that has an impact to stop the virus, you need to create herd immunity, which means with a reproduction rate of 2.5, you need about 73% of the population to be immune. But masks will get you almost the same benefit. And, and, and it doesn't cause herd immunity, but it stops the virus because you're not transmitting anymore. And that reproduction number goes from two and a half or two down to 0.5 or 0.6. It's said that if you have 60% of people wearing 60% effective masks, so the masks are only 60% effective and only 60% of people wear it, that alone should keep the reproduction number at one which means the virus is not stopping, but the virus isn't growing. If you can get up to 80% of people wearing masks that are between 60 and 80% effective, then you can foundationally stop the spread of the virus, just like if you had a vaccine. So what, um, what uh, Doc Fredericks was just saying is so important because we have a solution. We can impact and, and help reduce deaths, massively reduce deaths, massively reduced illnesses just by wearing a mask and most people aren't comfortable doing it but it really has very little risk and it has a tremendous upside and that's something that we're really really imploring our citizens and and asking our citizens to do because by protecting yourself you protect everybody else and if we all wear masks then we should be able to come back safely and continue to have these really low numbers that we've, um, you know, that we have experienced so far. Can I add something to that too? Please. So the other thing that happens along with what Dr. Marsh says is buying time. Every day that goes by, we learn more and more about how this disease works. So for instance, initially there was a whole push for ventilators. Everybody needed ventilators, right? As we learn what, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 can do to people that in some people it could be predominantly respiratory. In other people, it's multiple systems, coagulopathy, clots. Every day that goes by, doctors become more aware of how to identify which patients are more critically ill than others. They learn the patterns of this disease. They learn the effective treatments for this disease. And so by just slowing about slowing the rate of transmission, it buys physicians and medical professionals and researchers time to be able to effectively treat it when it happens, as opposed to being crushed. Everybody saw the flattening of the curve thing. At that point, in early disease, and again, this is just two and a half, three months ago, we're talking about this, not long at all. I mean, a normal paper to publish in a journal, you're looking at two to three years sometimes to get that data out. And we've been publishing papers in a matter of months, right? Good papers and data take a long time to look at and critically analyze. So every person that wears a mask buys more time. And yes, people will still get infected, but the longer it takes for them to get infected means the more knowledge we have about it and the more accurately we can diagnose how COVID is affecting them and we can apply resources appropriately to care for that person and hopefully recover them more effectively. And I was just going to add, just like Dr. Frederick said, you know, we talked about flattening the curve at the very beginning of the of the pandemic. 
And unfortunately, I think a lot of people were under the impression that flattening the curve meant that we were going to decrease the number of cases that would kind of make its way across the country and then it would just be gone. Um, and to Dr. Marsh's point, you know, we really need to be prepared in the event that there is a resurgence, that there is a, a second wave that comes through. And a lot of the measures that are put in place that have been able to flatten the curve are the ones that we're going to need to continue to, to have in place as far as the, the three C's in order to make sure that we kind of decrease the amount of transmission that we have within the, the community within West Virginia. Again, like Dr. Frederick said, in order to buy time so we can get a vaccine, we can get better therapeutics, we can get a better understanding of, of the disease and the transmission itself. But then also, you know, COVID-19 is around the world. And, you know, with a globalized world, we're going to have people that are going to bring that disease back into the United States, back into West Virginia. So as things open up, we just need to make sure that we keep that in mind as well. So, um, so you know, this is going to be around at least some of these measures um, that are really good for not just for COVID-19, but also for other respiratory diseases, such as influenza. Um, you know, if we had some of these uh, three C's put in place back during the the influenza season, we probably would have dramatically decreased the amount of influenza that we saw and probably would have had a more productive force from the National Guard standpoint as far as, um, you know, recommending that people don't come to work necessarily if they're feeling sick, make sure that they do the hygiene and the respiratory etiquette so that you have maybe one person that's out for a while, but you don't lose 30% of your unit um, within a week because they end up coming down with influenza. So, again, I think there's a lot of generalizability with this. Um, as far as these three C's to other respiratory things. And again, we just need to make sure that we remain vigilant um, in the event that there may be another wave that comes through. It, Dr. Kuebner has a great point there because we have accepted the fact that every year, for whatever reason, 30, 40, 50,000 Americans are going to die from flu. What if we did things differently and only 10,000 people died of flu every year? What if not just because we're trying to control SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. What if we control that? But it, the benefit we get is we don't see 50,000 Americans die from influenza, which is a bad way to die. No bad, no good way. It's just, it's, it's not good. Yet, yet we're learning things that we hope will also pay off in other respiratory illness that has some more transmission patterns. Um, I think that it challenges all of us. If you could save a life through the simple act of wearing a mask, would it be worth it? And again, we're not talking about on your, on your patio in the middle of summer barbecuing steak with your family. We're talking about when you go in the grocery store for 45 minutes. Or we're talking when you have to have an appointment with a group of people or in an office space that's just a little too close. Would you be willing to save a life if all it costs you is wearing a mask? And the second thing I'd like to say about what Dr. Huebner said is we are looking right now at South America. We're looking at Brazil. We're looking at other countries in the Southern Hemisphere because they are six months ahead of us. They're going into their winter. And right now we're in summer, which is great. UV radiation probably inactivates COVID-19 pretty rapidly out and outside. But six months, based upon what we see right now going on in South America, in sub-equatorial Africa, Australia, Indonesia, we can get a pretty good idea of each of those parts of the world and how they approach this disease and what's effective when we hit winter next year. And I think it's really important that people start listening to that when we when we see perhaps in in September, October, based upon what Dr. Marsh is doing on the civilian side, what Dr. Hubner and other folks in the military are doing as far as analysis of this data, if people are saying, look, we are approaching something that could be pretty bad, it's because 
really smart people have been looking at those trends right now in this in the south southern hemisphere winter and saying this could be us if we don't change the way we do business it's really important that people take that seriously there's there's so many people working on this that are just devoted to one thing and that is helping people survive and making sure someone's grandma or some pediatric patient doesn't die unnecessarily from this disease. And it's not a conspiracy. It's a real deal. We have 110,000 Americans that have died from this disease. That, that blows flu out of the water. And it, it, it with, with, by double at least. And it only happened in a matter of a couple of months. It, it's really serious. Wow. I would just say one other thing is that, that exactly what um, what Dr. Fredericks has said, that at the end of the day, when you look at, uh, at the world right now, Brazil has the second most number of cases in the entire world. And so as we look at the fall and winter coming, that could be us if we don't make the appropriate um, move and the appropriate intervention. And so so I think West Virginia has been fantastic. The people have really rallied together. But I do think that the wearing of masks is such an important tool that we have in our solution set. But it is a challenging cultural change for people to adapt. So that's something we really have to work on. I, think. I was just to say, even outside of the seasonal changes, um, you know, with people having, you know, closer contact in the winter, um, looking at resurgence, you look at what's happening right now in Arizona um, in the, uh, the the wave that's hit Arizona and the fact that they've had to have their hospitals now um, go back to operating their emergency operation cells. Um, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but the number of folks that they have on ventilators right now for COVID-19 are higher than what they had during their initial um, phase of, of the response. So, Again, it's one of those things where, you know, we just have to remain vigilant and, uh, and mind this, you know, through the rest of the summer going into the, going into the wintertime as well. I, I, I think on a hopeful note, and it may just be, it may just be needing polyamateur or wanting to see the world through rose-colored glasses. But I think another reason why West Virginia has done well with it, and to some extent Southeast Ohio, is because Appalachians have a very close family connection. It, it's very easy for a person to relate to an older person in a nursing home that they love or care for. Uh, there's a lot of families that are very extended. They know an aunt or a grandpa or somebody or a, heaven, you know, diabetes, right? It's all over the place. Everybody in this part of the world knows someone who's got some sort of medical illness. And I have a sort of uh, ad hoc study that I go with every day when I drive from Southridge in Charleston, I passed the Sam's Club, and I watched the line of people wearing masks. And if I compare it to what I see in Ohio, I think West Virginians, now, it's an unscientific survey, <laughs> but I'm watching the people in West Virginia, and I see them lining up, and they're using masks, and they're patient, and they're, they realize there's something to this. Even with all the noise and social media working against it, I think that the community nature of Appalachia, West Virginia, is such that people can relate to this and say, is this going to cause someone I care about a big problem if I don't do the right thing? And that's a good thing. That, that's a really good thing. I would uh, like to ask, Clay, your thoughts on the West Virginia Guard and their response to the, the governor's tasking and all that has gone on since pandemic has started. I, I'd love to hear, you know, 
your experiences since all this began and uh, uh, anything you'd like to share about the guard? Well, that one's an easy one for me because the guard has been, you know, I walked, I, I came into this experience and, and I've known, you know, uh, Jim Hoyer and, and some of the other folks in the guard and I've had tremendous respect for the guard for a long time, but since I've been now more shoulder to shoulder, virtually, of course, um, with the guard and the guard members, including, you know, um, uh, the two great gentlemen on the phone with me, uh, you know, Kermit Hubner and, and Todd Fredericks and, and, you know, Wally Hatfield and Russ Crack. Mm-hmm. I could name so many people that these are not only just spectacular people, and they are spectacular people. And these are really bright people and really committed to the purpose that, that really, to me, exemplifies the best that we have in West Virginia and also in this country. But they are the, they have an incredible ability to become the glue that holds everything together. And I don't mean that as a, as, as any kind of like, you know, comment on the lack of talent because these are incredibly talented people creative you know but the commitment to service and to duty and to and to helping you know the guard is really the the key ingredient that has made this response in west virginia work and i and i know i could ask probably governors of other eras and 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 in other disasters and say, what was the key to making this work? And they would say the guard. And and I could not be prouder as a West Virginian to know that our National Guard is the best group in the country. And and I think that that's been consistent for many, many years. And I see the pride of membership, and I see the pride of the craft of what they do. But as opposed to being you know, a unit that just focuses on military strategy and military deployment. I mean, this is a group of committed people that elevate all around them and do the work that is God's work in serving, helping feed our children or helping make sure our elderly are safe or decontaminating places that have become infected or innovating with the universities and with other people to be able to come up with new ways to test, new ways to produce our personal protective equipment, deploying those, training people. I mean, I can just go on and on and on, and I still probably wouldn't scratch the surface of what this group does every day. So for one West Virginian to the people on the, on the, the podcast, but also the people out there, I would say thank you for your service. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your excellence. Thank you for agreeing to be people that help elevate everybody around you because I was really impressed walking into this. I am blown away today. And like I say, I don't even think that I am communicating adequately the the scratching the surface because this is just an incredible group of people. And we are just so fortunate to have them here with us in West Virginia. Well, I, thank you, sir. I, and that is the end of my prepared questions. And uh, what I would ask is uh, I'll go around to each of you, and if you have any uh, final thoughts, I would ask for them. And, uh, Clay, I'll go ahead and start with you. 
No, I would just say that uh, that certainly for people on the on the call, I, I would say it's really important for you each to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. We we know that by taking care of yourself and and doing the right things that we have talked about on this podcast, and and that I know that the guard is you know instructs the membership that it's really important because by protecting yourself, you protect your family, your community, the vulnerable people in West Virginia. Um, And also, you know, again, I'll I'll just reinforce what I just finished saying, that I could not be more impressed or more grateful for the service and the excellence of of this group in the state of West Virginia. And, And I found great kinship in the creative part of the Guard as well. Um, and so um, I know that the state of West Virginia is in good hands, you know, with, the, with any administration that has the Guard serving the state underneath them. So thank you. Colonel Fredericks. Well, I, I really am humbled by what Dr. Mark says about us. I have been in West Virginia Guard for going on about 26 years. I've been all over the state with flood duty. I've been all over the state with other emergencies. And I would just say, I think what he may be saying is that most of us have spent a considerable amount of time overseas uh, participating in the nation's conflicts. And that's, that's sort, of a, sort of a difficult thing to put your head around sometimes because you don't see a bigger picture. What I know about West Virginia is that I've met people all over the state I've met people who have lost their homes in floods who come out and bring water to our folks when they're trying to work or try to give us something that they don't even have to spare. And so when I think about this problem, I think of it as when I watch the brief every morning and I see another person who's died in the state, I think that may have been that person that, that took care of us while we were out there trying to help them in a flood and they had nothing. And to me, that, that becomes a, a huge challenge to do everything I can to help and nothing I, I can to interfere um, with keeping numbers low and, and not making a mistake that creates division or, or, or problems with us managing this as a big team of people, all of whom have very powerful personalities, all of whom are very smart, but making sure that we're doing everything we can to make the right steps in the right time and not give people that information. Those numbers mean something. We, we watch it every morning. We watch the numbers of how another West Virginian, or a couple of days ago it was five, and one night it died. And it was powerful because this is very tangible to us. I fought in Iraq. I fought a, a peacekeeping, a peacekeeping in Kosovo. This is West Virginia. These are real people that I know, and I know that what we do has a direct impact on how they'll be able to live their lives and spend time with their families and, and go on to the future. And, how, and, and that challenges us every day to try to figure out how do we make it to where they can live with this thing and not suffer from it. And so I'm just thankful that some of that is seen by our civilian leadership in the form of Dr. Marsh and his, his leadership at the COVID czar and, uh, and that they have confidence that what we're doing is helping. Colonel Hubner. So just to echo some with what uh, Doc Frederick said in regards to Dr. Marsh's remarks, um, you know, I think the National Guard is an amazing organization in general. I think the West Virginia National Guard um, has probably some of the best and brightest and most committed folks um, of any National Guard that there is in the nation. 
And I think a lot of that goes to, um, you know, leadership that likes to work in complex adaptive systems where there's lots of uncertainty, lots of unknowns. Where we have to be able to, to make decisions and uh, be able to kind of stick with those decisions, but then adapt as we, as we need to. And so I've seen that in this um, mission that we've had with COVID-19 from the senior leadership level all the way down to the enlisted level with our privates and our airmen that have been involved in assisting us and making some of those, those decisions. It's also been great to have an opportunity to work and see how other organizations and agencies in the state can kind of function in, in an environment that we're somewhat used to working in in regards to that complex, complex adaptive system of being in a combat environment with the you know, Department of Health and Human Resources, the emergency management system, the EMS workers, the hospital planners and, and, and emergency planners um, and our academic partners. It's just been great to see everybody pull together. And as Dr. Marsh had mentioned, um, just the innovation that's come out of West Virginia mm-hmm. for a state that has, you know, been placed lower on the resource list nationally with this national crisis, we've been able to, you know, essentially pull out of it and be somewhat self-reliant in a way that I think no other state really has. And it's really been amazing to, uh, to watch that. So, you know, my guidance and, you know, thoughts for folks that are listening to the podcast would be, you know, with the guard, we're problem solvers and people need us to be problem solvers. And so we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves, doing these three C's, making sure that we stay healthy so that we can be there to uh, step in and assist whatever we're needed. That's going to do it for today's episode. For more about the West Virginia National Guard, you can find us on the web at www.wv.ng.mil. And stay up to date with all the current news of the West Virginia National Guard and find links to our social media sites. This has been Master Sergeant Eugene Christ with your West Virginia National Guard. Have a great day, and on behalf of the 6,400 guardsmen in uniform and 700 civilian employees and our families, stay safe and stay West Virginia strong.